All right, let's do this. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by RTS Washington, part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington. I'm joined by our New Testament lecturer, Paul John, our professor of New Testament, Tommy Keene, professor of Old Testament, Peter Lee, and professor of systematic theology, Grace Utanto. And we are now in the fourth article of the Apostles' Creed in this series that we're doing right now, where we're working through this great old creed of the Christian church that establishes a kind of baseline, really, a baseline of faith uh, for the Christian community. And here in the fourth article that we're reading today, we read that Jesus Christ is not only Son, not only Lord, that's the third article, but is conceived of by the Holy Spirit conceived of by the Holy Spirit. And uh, this is one of those passages that I know, uh, having daughters uh, who are memorizing these kinds of things and reciting them these days, this is one that every time in church we get to it, there's some looks of perplexity. There's, there's, a, there's a little bit of, of a lack of understanding in terms of what does it mean to be conceived of by the Holy Spirit, or as Tommy Keene says from Dallas, the Holy Ghost. What does it mean to be conceived by the Holy Spirit? So let me open up the floor. And someone take it away. <laughs> so Tommy, unpack that for us. Well, it's an, it's an incredibly significant moment in the overall history of redemption. I mean, if you're thinking about the Bible as a narrative, this is unlike anything that has happened from this point forward, we have here at the beginning of Jesus's own life, we have here a human being, fully God, fully man, but a human being rece- receiving the Holy Spirit in a way that is unique. He is conceived in a way that is unique directly from God. God is intruding into history and his space and time and bringing about the incarnation and, and so what we have in Jesus Christ is somebody who is fully human, and hopefully we'll be able to talk about that in, uh, in a more full way as we kind of move forward, but fully human and fully divine uh, in, in a way that no other representative has, ha- has been before. So Jesus is v- very much unique in this, and it is a miracle like, unlike any other miracle. Yeah, I think what's being emphasized here with uh, the conception of the Holy Ghost is precisely that salvation does belong to the Lord alone. And so what is emphasized here is the origin, right, that God himself has sent his son into the earth. And so with the origin in view, mankind is on the receiving end of the salvation. And I think that's what's being emphasized here theologically. Yeah, there's this idea of the Holy Spirit being kind of representative in many ways as, as the power of God um, and active. I should put it this way. I mean, the, the Holy Spirit being active in the things that God is doing in the world. You see even in creation in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit is present, hovering over the surface of the deep. You, you see this throughout redemptive history that the Spirit is involved in the work of the Lord, not just in the self-expression, the revelation of the Lord through the inspiration, and that's right, spirit language, 
the inspiration of scripture, but in all of God's revelation, all of his work in the world, the spirit is involved. I think often as Christians, we, we kind of think of the spirit without, by the way, jumping ahead in the, in the Apostles' Creed to we believe in the Holy Spirit, but I think it's important here. We think of the spirit in these kind of individual works, right? You know, inspiration of scripture, illumination of scripture, the sanctification of the Christian. Um, you know, Paul says, you cannot say Jesus is Lord and mean it unless the spirit is saying it within you. And yet here we see this very kind of Trinitarian conception, even of the incarnation of Christ. And this is going to be something that's present throughout his life, as we've already kind of alluded to, that the second person of the Trinity is doing his work in the third person of the Trinity, right? Is that, I think that's fair to say. It's not only here in the incarnation and in his conception, but it will be at the beginning of his ministry, his baptism, it's going to be in his resurrection, right? The spirit is going to be a, a constant attendant in the work of the humiliation and the glorification of Jesus Christ. It is interesting how, you know, Scott, when you just kind of describe the breadth of the work of the spirit beyond uh, just illumination and inspiration, uh, and, and you alluded to Genesis 1-2 and the uh, presence of the spirit there in creation, I've always found it a bit interesting how much kind of Genesis, almost creational type imagery we have right there in the genealogy in Matthew 1, and then also the mention of the spirit there again. You know, you've got the... Um, well, it's a genealogy. It, it makes a direct connection all the way back to the genealogies of Genesis of Genesis five and eleven that really are dependent on Genesis three fifteen. You have the uh, the fourteen generational the groups of three, you know the six groups of seven that leads to Jesus as the final seven, the Sabbath, so to speak, and then the presence of the Spirit there. Uh, in the same way, it, it seems that the Spirit is there at the very dawn of every major act of uh, act of God uh, right. at creation. He was there at the, um, you know, when the tabernacle was completed, the temple was completed, the spirit was there to fill it here at the, uh, in many ways, the climax, the high point of the history of uh, salvation. Here is the birth now of the Messiah, the God man. This is everything that the Old Testament has been building towards. And it just seems appropriate that we're going to have a Holy Spirit event, so to speak, a Holy Spirit presence here it, it just seems appropriate it's just sort of the mo so to speak of the spirit throughout the entire history of salvation i love that idea of, of the spirit being sort of sort of keeping time for redemptive history right this there's this idea in the old testament of the day of the lord and it's one of the expressions of the power of god the almighty power of god that there's a day no matter what happens around you whether it's the babylonians or the assyrians or the persians there's a day, right, when the Lord will set all things aright. Okay, this, this, this idea of the day of the Lord seen prospectively in the prophets. And Jesus will even talk about like the, well, the New Testament authors will talk about the fullness of time, right? And that the spirit in a way is almost kind of like, you know, I don't like the term metronome because it sounds impersonal, but he's like the metronome for redemptive history. He's keeping the beats of redemptive history, making sure each thing happens in its time. And he's present now in, the, in this context today, in this conception of Christ, the culmination of redemptive history. He's bringing yeah, that, it to the crescendo. 
that reminds me of uh, an essay by uh, by Gerhardus Voss on uh, I'm going to mess up the title. It's the the Pauline conception of the eschatological work of the Spirit. It's a really wordy title, but where he makes a case that the that the last days is really the age of the Spirit, and that uh, that the work of the Spirit is so connected with the with with Paul's concept of the last days of the uh, of the end times and and how in many ways this is the age of the spirit now the new covenant age is the age of that of the of the holy spirit sort of what you were just talking about and i think that that's so fantastic and the age is inaugurated by the incarnation in a way right right you know that that the, the age begins with the birth now to switch over to systematic theology of the last adam right the 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 spirit in breathing uh, and conceiving this last atom. I think this is such a key connection to make because now we're seeing actually that the spirit was active both in cre creation and recreation, right? That what's going on here with the conception of the Holy Spirit rightly parallels the spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2, bringing life out of nothing. So is he now bringing uh, the son's life here in his uh, Adamic human nature? And I think this is missed in a lot of theological literature because I think we tend to think about God's work purely in redemptive categories. We miss that the Spirit's been working in creation as well, anticipating the coming of Jesus Christ in recreation. And that this is why I think theologians in the Reformed tradition should emphasize the Spirit's common grace in creation that anticipates the work of the Spirit in redemptive grace. Uh, we miss that because I think we have this view of the spirit that is purely supernaturalistic. It's coming in this intermittent, uh, completely out of the ordinary way, right? Whereas actually the spirit has been active all along. And this work in supernatural redemptive revelation is actually very much organically in comport with uh, what he's been working in the natural order. I think those are some really helpful points from Peter and, and Scott and Gray about just kind of the coherence of this work that God has been doing from the very beginning. It's, some of these ideas were things I was trying to get at, and I felt like I fumbled in my first, my first response. But it's, you know, there's two things that we have to remember when it comes to the overshadowing of the Spirit here in the birth of Jesus. First, this is not the Spirit's first rodeo. This is not the Spirit's first intrusion into history. The Spirit has been there from the beginning, you know, hovering over the waters, and then particularly in Adam, we're told that God breathed life-giving spirit into Adam. We're told that in Genesis. We're told it again by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. This is God breathing his spirit into Adam. So we need to remember that, that the spirit has been at work from the beginning. But also, secondly, that this is unprecedented. I know that word's been kind of stolen from us, but this work that's in Jesus in particular is some new thing. It is a climactic fulfillment of that which has been going on from the beginning so that now God's chosen representative in the world, God's chosen Messiah has the spirit in a unique way and is more fully united to uh, the spirit than any other human being has ever been. Um, and this then becomes the seed of new creation of, of this, you know, as, as Voss put it, that the age of the spirit begins with the man of the spirit, Jesus Christ. It's interesting too, that it's the conception of Jesus that, that strikes me. And it keeps us from a kind of adoptionism that there's this 
child who is then sort of possessed of the spirit, right? This, this normal human child who is possessed of the spirit, but rather it's in his conception. It's in his, it's in his origin. Which is why he's better than John. John the Baptist receives the spirit in the womb, but Jesus is born of the spirit. Amen. Yeah. And that John, John the Baptist can actually even give give expression to his regenerate self, right? His regeneration by leaping in the womb of his mother when he comes yeah. near to Christ. Okay, amazing. Um, and and Jesus, however, is conceived. John is spirit is spirit of regeneration. We might say, without getting too into the details of it, is responding to that which is conceived of in the spirit. Which is Christ? Yeah, this, yeah, this emphasis between um, on the you might say intimacy or union between the Son and the Spirit uh, reminds me of like John's language uh, that underscores the union between the Father and Son. And so sometimes we can forget that Jesus is equally united to the Trinity. But when we read all these passages together, we really see a kind of perfect fellowship perfect identification between all three persons of the spirit uh, of the trinity and then you know it's i think even when we think about the spirit uh being poured out later on disciples it's amazing to think that we now possess that kind of um intimacy as well uh, via our union with christ i mean so i think that understanding first this extraordinary union between the son and the spirit and the father of course if we begin to grasp that, that deepens our understanding of the gospel that now we are in a kind of mysterious way also united uh, to this fellowship. Yeah, that's really helpful um, and practical in the way we think about our own personal lives. We are part of this uh, new creation. And I think it's a reminder to us again, like this, the, the idea of being conceived by the spirit, sometimes we connect it just immediately to Jesus is a divine person. And that's true. He is, and this is proof of that. But the spirit, the the story of Jesus's relationship with the spirit doesn't end here. It, it begins here, but it doesn't end here. It keeps it keeps going. So the spirit which Jesus has at his birth, he is going to receive again at his baptism. He is. It is the spirit that is going to lead him into the wilderness to be tempted. It is the spirit that is going to lead him. And to the cross and by whose power he is going to endure the cross. It is the power of the spirit that he is going to be raised into newness of life. And it is that then resurre- resurrected spirit that he's going to pour out on his disciples and upon, and upon us. So this is really what we're seeing is Jesus being born of the spirit, now birthing the spirit into all of creation. Yeah, John Frame has a helpful way of thinking about this. He he refers back to how Samson received an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, right? And therefore, he was able to you know, tear apart a lion, defeat multiple Philistines, right? And uh, to make the point that the work that Samson does in delivering Israel uh, comes from the Lord, right? And I think we see something analogous, not just in Jesus's ministry, but again, when we hear Jesus promising to send them um, the spirit, it's, it's striking that the language he uses uh, when he speaks to his disciples is that it is to your advantage that I go, 
so that you have the spirit. Because now that we have the spirit, we can look back at uh, Samson, Christ, and see that uh, there are things that we can now do, which we would not have been able to do apart from the outpouring of the spirit. Right. We're actually more connected to Christ since he is leaving than if he had stayed for now. Okay, so there's a question that arises, keeping this, you know, in this idea of being conceived of by the Spirit. When we think about Trinitarian relationships, one of the distinctions between the second person and the third person of the Trinity is this idea of procession, you know, the double procession of the Spirit versus the singular procession of the Son. Help us think through this a little bit, Gray. How is it that here we have second person of the Trinity being conceived of, conceived by the third person of the Trinity? How should we understand this, both in kind of our Trinitarian theology and in our you know, dual natures of Christ and those kinds of issues that arise when we think about this kind of thing? That's a great question, Scott. And I think what has to be in the forefront of our minds is that the operations of God, because God has one will, is ultimately indivisible. The conception of the spirit here uh, that results in the incarnation of Jesus Christ shows us that the whole Trinity is at work, even in the incarnation. I think we oftentimes think that the work of the incarnation is just solely the work of the son, because and rightly so, this is the second person of the Trinity in the human nature of Jesus Christ. Right. But at the same time, it's not as if the father was inactive or the spirit was inactive, because, again, the whole work of the Trinity is indivisible. You can divide them up. And economically, therefore, you're going to see this play out in the way in which the, the whole triune God works in the life of Jesus Christ. And so the Father sends the Son. The Son is the one who would be conceived. And the Spirit is the one as the life giver causing the, the human nature of Christ to come about here in this case, right? So I think here we're, we're really standing on classical Trinitarian conceptions to understand really what's going on, lest we divide up the Trinity. And it also helps us illumine the way in which there's an economic order that matches the processions that are eternal, right? The, the Father is the unbegotten one. The Son is generated by the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So in the economic sending, the Father sends the Son, and the Spirit therefore confirms the work of the Son, not only his conception, but also, as you said, Scott, his whole ministry as well. I wonder, you know, the, the conception language has so much, you know, do you think there is a... Genesis 3.15 allusions to that idea of, of his being conceived here uh, by the Holy Spirit. That's a great question, Peter. What do you have in mind, particularly in Genesis 3.15? Well, you know, Genesis 3.15 makes that, you know, that remarkable overarching kind of architectural uh, structure of uh, the, uh, the necessity of the one born of a woman presuming some type of, uh, you know, conception, uh, a, a birth, uh, there has to be, there, there is a need for a birth. And, you know, this is a sort of one reason why birthing narrative and birthing theology, so to speak, is so significant and, and outstanding obstructions to birth, things like that, that you read out, that you uh, read throughout, you know, the entire history uh, of salvation. Here now you have a birth and, and it's so highly specialized. It's not any normal birth, it's unique. Nowhere else have we read about a conception here uh, of this magnitude of the Spirit's direct involvement like this, other than the initial act of creation. Uh, I guess I just, I'm curious if there is perhaps a, uh, 
broad allusion to Genesis 3.15 and, and that we're, and we're expected here to see that in the conception of Jesus by the Spirit, that mm. we are to think of the seed of the woman of Genesis 3.15. Yeah, I think one way we can answer that question, Peter, and it's a really profound one, is that the incarnation and specifically the hypostatic union, the idea that in Jesus Christ, we see one person, the second person of the Trinity in two natures, divine and human, is that in Genesis 3.15, the idea that the, the salvation of the human race will come by human Messiah, the seed of the woman, right? Starts to produce for us a mystery and even a conundrum because how can a seed of the woman who is a human being be the source of salvation if God is the one who would save. And how can this person therefore get credit for salvation if only God could get all the glory, right? And I think the incarnation shows us this wonderful answer to the mystery. Here is a man, Jesus Christ, who would replace other human beings. There's no one else who sinned but humanity. And so man needs to take humanity's place. But at the same time, he's not just merely a man because as the divine one, he can fully take on the wrath of God, but also as we worship this man, then we're not committing ourselves to idolatry. We can give him all the credit for our salvation. He can save us to the utmost. And yet at the same time, he is the one who's truly able to represent us. And so Genesis 3.15 as a conundrum and the incarnation uh, really responds to that. Yeah, that, that's terrific. I, you almost get the sense in the, at least in the Matthew narrative, where we have the mention of the conceit of the Holy Spirit. It really sets him up as for now, that is why he can be, the savior for, of the sins of his people, the, you know, his being um, uh, a sacrifice for us requires him to be without sin, thus conceived of the Holy Spirit, thus his conception of the Holy Spirit is a prerequisite in order for him to be that perfect sacrifice um, that you see kind of already typologically anticipated in the Old Testament and how, you know, the animal sacrifices there could not be blemished or, de or de defected in any way. It's leading to the ideal, to that picture of, of the ideal, perfect, once and only sacrifice. And thus, thus that requires this person then to be conceived of the Holy Spirit, sort of logically. It's, so, it's such a beautiful picture of so many different things. I, I, I guess I, I'm just struck again about the kind of coherence of Scripture as represented in particularly the incarnation. This is not some throwaway doctrine. This isn't some sort of Greek hero myth um, where we're trying to, to make Hercules seem bigger and, and better than a normal human being, but rather every kind of component theologically, narratively, historically, and doxologically, they all tie in to this point. Um, you're, you're, this is why we worship Jesus. This is how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's creative work in Adam. This is how Jesus fits into the cosmos. All of it kind of at a nexus point here in the overshadowing of the spirit at, at, at his birth. It's, I'm drawn up to praise uh, all anew. I, I love this topic because, yeah, you're right. It does, it does draw our attention to Christ in the spirit, which is such a, you know, sort of a full-bodied way of worship, right? You know, this idea of worshiping Christ in the spirit of Christ, worshiping the Father in the spirit. Um, a question that still is, you know, stands for me, and I can't wait till we get back to the Holy Spirit um, later on in the Creed, because I think we want to spend some more time on that. 
but it's really, you know, it's really striking how the creed is following the, the creedal agendas that we find in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, in Ephesians 4, where you're naming, you're using the Old Testament divine names to identify persons of the Trinity. Uh, Elohim is the father. Adonai is the son, right? God is the father. Uh, Lord is the Christ. And yet the spirit, particularly with Ephesians 4, you're thinking about the spirit is doing this stuff, right, in the midst of that. And it raises a question that we're going to have to come back to again. How do we uh, disambiguate the spirit from the father and the son? You know, there's, there's kind of a clear multi-persons of the Trinity in the father and the son. How do we understand the spirit as a third person? So we'll have to come back to that. But it's interesting to me, it just struck me now as we're talking about this, how we've introduced the father and the son by their names and that the spirit is kind of assumed in the work that's going on. And we've just had the spirit introduced and we're going to come back later and judging by the pace that we're going now, it'll probably be sometime in 2023. We're going to come back to uh, the article on the spirit and um, look forward to having that discussion with you brothers then. Uh, And for everyone else, thanks for joining us for this fascinating discussion and uh, join us next time we get back together to talk about the Apostles' Creed. We're going to talk about the other side of this equation, which is being born of the Virgin Mary. Thanks and take care. I'm happy to start. I, um, but I don't know how to. Well, it's, it's that's a it, great start. <laughs> no, no, I, that is a great start. <laughs>